Our scripture reading today is 2 Samuel eleven twenty six through 12, 7a. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he, bar- and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this surely deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man, the word of the Lord. morning. As we turn to God's word, let's bow together for prayer. Father, as we just sang together in praise, we acknowledge our need. We need you every hour. This hour, these few moments we have together are no exception. We come to your word dependent on you to open our eyes, to open our hearts to that which we need to see individually, that which we need to see corporately. And so would you speak, give us ears to hear, and hearts ready to receive what you would have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Do you think back to the last time you accidentally broke something in the kitchen? For some of us, if you're like me, that happens maybe a little more often than it does to others. Knocking a glass off the counter or dropping a plate. It's often a big mess, right? There's glass everywhere. For me, cleanup involves a dustpan and a broom usually, right? You sweep up all those scattered shards of whatever it is that was broken and you get it in the dustpan. You finally clean up the mess. And then you put it back in the cupboard. No. If you're like me, you dump it in the trash, right? Although it's dangerous. Not to mention the fact that whatever it was that was broken no longer has value. It's no longer useful as what it was before it was broken. And so, if you're like me, you drop it in the trash. That's what most of us do, except for maybe those of us who are trained in the art, the Japanese art of kintsugi. This, if you've ever seen this before or heard of it, this is an art that repairs pottery, not just by gluing it together and calling it done. But it uses a lacquer mixed with powdered gold. The piece that was broken is restored. 
And the places where it was broken are now not only restored, but even shine with a whole new beauty. We've been studying the life of David together over the last several weeks. Last week, if you were with us, we saw David's imperfections. Maybe that's putting it too mildly. I think it is. We saw David fall into evil and sin, all sorts of temptation. He shattered into a million pieces, we could say. David, this man after God's own heart that in so many ways has been an example for us, a shining light of what it means, of what it looks like for us to follow after God's own heart, has fallen into sin that is so contrary to God's heart. Now what? What is God going to do with this guy? Does he just pick up the dustpan, sweep up the pieces, and throw it away? That's what David deserved. But instead we see in the story, God picks up the pieces But instead of throwing David away, instead of casting him off, he invites David to something else. He invites him into this painful process of seeing his own brokenness. And in the way that David responds, he yet again is an example for us because he shows us what it looks like for us as God's people, for all of us, to see our brokenness. To come in repentance to the one who can restore, who can heal, who can forgive. So would you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you have a Bible in front of you, if you can, you can also see that text on our website, bulletin page, 2 Samuel chapter 12. But as we just heard, and thank you James for reading our text, as we just heard in the scripture reading, chapter 11 ends with a very clear declaration that what David did, God saw it as evil, okay? There's no getting around that. What David did was evil, So God would be perfectly justified in taking David's life, or at the very least, casting him off, right? Let's let's get another king, yet another failure of a king. Let's get a new one, right? But God has something else in mind. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1, So the Lord sent Nathan to David. You might remember this guy. We last saw him back in chapter 7. Nathan is a prophet. He's an advisor to the king. And as a prophet, he held a unique role in the nation. God often used his prophets as, as messengers to deliver his word, to, to get his people's attention about something. That's exactly what's happening here. Except it's not to the whole nation, it's to one man, it's to the king. Think about some other ancient countries where the king was seen as divine. There was no higher authority, but yet here in Israel, even the king is not above the law. He's not above submitting himself to God's rule, and so God uses the prophets often to to remind the kings who they're subject to, ultimately. So the prophet Nathan is sent to deliver a message to David. Trouble is, with being a prophet, they don't always have the longest life expectancy, right? Having to confront the most powerful people on earth is no small thing. Nathan is risking his life here, going before the king. Nathan knows what's going on. This is no secret. By now, word has gotten out about what's happened. Nathan certainly knows what's happening. He knows what David is guilty of. He knows that David had Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed for convenience sake. So it wouldn't be a stretch to think David might get rid of Nathan the prophet, this pesky guy that's calling out his sin, right? 
But Nathan goes. Nathan goes at God's command, and he delivers the word. He delivers the message that God wants him to. Look at the rest of verse 1. When he arrived, he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. There's no messing around. There's no talking about the weather like so many of us are doing these days here in these 105, 6, 7 degree temperatures, right? There's no talking about the weather. No small talk. Nathan gets right to the point. He shows up and says, hey, listen, there were two men in a certain city. He starts right in telling him a story, and it's essentially a parable. But he doesn't tell David, hey, let me tell you a parable. He just starts right in. He lets the story do its work. And now in the Hebrew, what he shares here is only 61 words, carefully chosen words. As a writer, I'm always interested in in brevity, right? The ability of a skilled writer or storyteller to use the fewest and best words to make an impact. And wow, we see that here. So let's hear the story that Nathan has for David. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor, The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised her, and she grew up with him and with his children. From his meager food she would eat, from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. You can see David, you can imagine David's eyes locked onto Nathan as he's hearing this story. Remember, he's not told it's a parable. David is just swept up into the story as if it's real events. Think of David's heart. Inwardly, he's in turmoil over his own sin. He doesn't want to face what's going on in his own, his own heart, so he He jumps at the opportunity to focus on somebody else's problems for a minute, to focus on somebody else's wrong. He hears this injustice done to this poor man, and he wants to do something about it. Verse 5, David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. David is infuriated. He is stirred up. He invokes God's name here and says, this guy deserves to die. It's an interesting choice of words, isn't it? Who else deserves to die according to the law? Well, someone who has committed such flagrant and open rebellious sin as David has done. Committing adultery and then murder to cover it up. David deserves to die. But he's only seeing the rich man's wrong But the story hooked him, and that's exactly why Nathan delivered the word this way. It's exactly the point. This was a brilliant strategy to deliver the message, to to break down David's defenses. Can you imagine if Nathan had rolled in and said, Hey, hey King, we need to talk about your sin. Does that ever work? Do we ever confront people like that? Hard hearts are not usually softened by direct attack, are they? And so what Nathan does here is he he slips this parable past David's defenses. He gets underneath and he pierces David's hard heart. So David declares, he's just taken along for the ride unknowingly. David's like, that man deserves to die. David is ready to bring other people to justice for their sin. 
To paraphrase Jesus, he, he sees the speck in someone else's eye, right? But he can't see the log that's in his own. Verse 7. Nathan replied to David, you are the man. It's you, David. It's you. That man who has so blatantly violated God's law and deserves death is you. Don't you see? You could hear a pin drop. Can you imagine being here? We can think of David's, the look in David's eyes as realization slowly dawns. These words strike him like a hammer blow. It's you. This has got to be one of the most dramatic scenes in all the Bible's narratives. This man after God's own heart who for a time has closed himself off to God, hardened his heart, has just had his heart ripped wide open. Remember, this took guts for Nathan to deliver this. Back when we saw Nathan in chapter 7, he seemed kind of like, uh, more like a yes man, didn't he? David's like, hey, I want to build a temple. I want to build God a bigger house. And what's Nathan's initial response? Good idea, David. You're the man. You're the man, David. Let's do it. Let's do it. He's kind of a yes man, at least when we first meet him. He seems that. But his you the man has turned into you are the man. A little bit different. A little bit different context here, right? You can feel the weight of this maybe better with the King James, thou art the man. Thou art the man. This is heavy. We don't like to see hard truths about ourselves. We so much prefer to see the, see the bad, to see the sin in others. I'm so glad I'm not a sinner like that guy. Whew. I'm not that bad. What, what do I need God to forgive me for, right? Maybe we don't say these things, but it's human nature to have, for these things very subtly to get in. We choose spiritual blindness rather than see the truth about ourselves. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have to be willing to see the hard truth about yourself. There is sin in your heart that's opposed to God, sin that hurts you, that hurts others. And something has to be done about it. See, lovingly, God wants to open your eyes to see the truth about yourself. Not to, not to judge, not to condemn you, but to heal you, to restore you, to right relationship with him. And as believers in Christ, those of us who have been forgiven and made right forever with God, we too can still fall into spiritual blindness like David does here. We too can harden our hearts for a season where we can refuse to see ourselves because it's too hard, it's too painful. Like David, none of us are immune to falling into all kinds of temptation and sin. But the question that this story, that this text poses for us is, how will we respond when we do? When God confronts us with our sin to bring us back to him, will we run from God? Will we harden our hearts? What do we do when he gets our, tries to get our attention? Look back at verse 7. Let's hear the rest of God's word for David through Nathan. So Nathan replied to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. You hear the emotion in these words from God? 
God's heart broken now over David's sin, this tragic phrase, I would have given you even more. See, this is what sin does. We think in our hearts that we want something, right? And so we take it in sin. Sin always takes from us. God is saying to to David here, David, I would have given you even more. But you went and tried to take something for yourself, and so you lost some blessing. This is what sin does. Verse 9, why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite's sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. Severe words. Severe consequences, but just for David's sin. See, again, this is what sin does. We think we can, we can take it, we can contain it, we can control it. But when we think we're, when we begin to get comfortable or complacent with sin in our lives, it can, it can leave a path of destruction. We've all experienced that directly in our own lives or indirectly in our families and our friends and our neighbors. This is what God is delivering here is really just a natural outworking of this sin. And God is letting it run its course. But how will David respond? Will he refuse to listen? Will he finally own it? Verse 13, David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, As the Lord has taken a, And the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. Boy, in David's few words here, I have sinned against the Lord. You can almost feel the weight lifted off his shoulders. Even as these severe consequences are coming down on him, you can feel the weight lifted. I have sinned. I have sinned. Just a few words. And maybe that's all he could get out of his mouth between his sobs. And that was enough for the moment. God was doing his work in David's heart. David's heart was, was pierced and broken. Despite the consequences for David's sin, Nathan assures him that his sin is forgiven. But again, this narrative doesn't give us too much of David's response, just these few words. I have sinned against the Lord. Thankfully, we can look elsewhere and see a little bit more of David's heart transformation in this moment. See what it looks like for the rest of us to seek God's heart in our brokenness, in our repentance, which is a place we all need to be. And so turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. This psalm is a psalm of David. It's one of the penitential psalms. It's a prayer of repentance, of turning from sin to God. And if you have it in front of you, notice the heading in your Bible. Your Bible translators might have put a title in there. But the, but the heading itself is in the original Hebrew text. And so as the Holy Spirit inspired these words, this is part of it. God wants us to see this connection here. 
I'm always interested to hear how some of my favorite songwriters, musicians, maybe wrote the songs that I love, right? What was going on in their minds? What, was, what were the circumstances in their life? What was the, where was their heart when they wrote that great song? Well, right here, David tells us where he was. A psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. So to Nathan, David only said, I have sinned against the Lord, but to the Lord, he said, Psalm 51. See, then David came before God and these words just poured out. Words that had been shut in, had been shut into a hard heart for so long, finally come freely. And notice the first words of the heading, for the choir director. Don't miss that. This is a deeply personal prayer. This is a very vulnerable prayer before God. And David says, hey, send this to the choir director. His heart is open, his heart is broken, and he's not hiding anymore. And so this prayer is for us too. For all of God's people to be guided into this place of brokenness and repentance. Because as we all know, sinning comes naturally to us, right? Nobody has to sit us down and teach us how to sin. But we do need to learn how to repent. We do need to learn how to approach God in our brokenness, and David guides us here. Now, we prayed much of this psalm already together this morning in Call to Worship because I wanted us to have these words already in our minds and hearts. But let's look at a few highlights in Psalm 51. Verse 1, David prays, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. This is a plea for mercy. In other words, he doesn't deserve it. That's what a plea for mercy is. But he calls on God's nature when he asks for it. Be gracious to me, God, according to what? According to your faithful love, your unfailing love, your hesed, this key Old Testament covenant word, God's covenant with his people based on who he is, not on us and on our performance. I like how commentator Derek Kidner put it, for all his unworthiness, David knows that he still belongs. Do you know that you still belong? If you're in Christ and you've sinned and you see the brokenness in your own heart, do you know that you still belong? Because this is so vital. David feels, and he is, so unworthy. But he still comes to God. Because sin has a way of deceiving us in all sorts of ways, but Two primary ones maybe here that we see in David. Either either we harden our hearts to God, we refuse to come to God because of our sin, right? We just keep on sinning, we harden our hearts, or we see our sin, we see our brokenness, we see the ugliness of it, and we don't come to God, right? We refuse to receive God's love and forgiveness because we think we're so unlovable. We think God wants nothing to do with us because of our sin, but David, even in his brokenness here, he knows that's not the nature of God. God invites David to him in his brokenness. David's sin is serious. David's sin was evil. But David comes to God. Look at all the different words for sin here. Verse 2, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion. And my sin is always before me. Remember, David had the blinders on. He couldn't see anything. Now, now he sees. 
Against you, verse 4, against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now wait just a minute. If you know the story, if you are with us last week, David sinned against a lot of people, right? Primarily Bathsheba and Uriah, but they weren't the only ones. He sinned against a lot of people. But so what does he mean here? David's not ignoring all these other people that he sinned against, but he sees this deeper truth that all of our sin, great or small, all of our sin is ultimately against God himself. And David is seeing that, and David is repenting. Verse 7, hear David's cry for cleansing. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. You notice all the verbs, all that David is asking God to do here? Purify, wash, blot out, create, renew, restore, sustain, save. But especially key in on verses 16 and 17. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. Now, this does not mean that God did not desire the sacrificial system that he established himself. But as so many of the prophets will say over and over and over again, ritual is meaningless without the heart. Ritual and sacrifice is meant to reflect what's going on in the heart. What God wants first and foremost when we sin is a broken and humble heart. Because he can do something with that. God wants us to see our brokenness so he can step in and heal and restore and remake us. So the main application from this psalm and from this whole narrative that I would suggest this morning is that we need to learn to pursue our brokenness. This does not come naturally for us, right? We run from brokenness. We don't want to see our brokenness. If you don't know Christ, again, God wants you to see yourself clearly because he wants to restore you to right relationship. And as believers, we know our brokenness doesn't stop when we first come to Christ, and so our sin nature persists. And until we stand in God's presence, the Spirit of God is constantly at work in us to make us more like Jesus. But that's not a comfortable process, is it? As we keep growing, there are deeper and deeper places in our hearts that need to be broken so God can renew us, so God can keep growing us. We have these, <clears throat> these plates at home that claim to be shatter-resistant. you have any like that? I found that's not very helpful to be shatter-resistant. Again, maybe that's just clumsy me breaking things all the time. But they're less likely to break, except when they do. 
And when they do, these shatter-resistant plates not only break, they basically explode into like a million pieces. Am I the only one that's experienced this? Maybe I am. See, being shatter-resistant really isn't all that helpful. It's not helpful in plates, and it's certainly not helpful in our hearts. We like to think, you know, we're, we're shatter-resistant, unbreakable. Maybe we put on a tough exterior, we act like spiritually we got it all together. That's spiritual blindness. Maybe we only let God so far into our hearts, we, we build up all sorts of defenses against having our heart broken, and that's human nature. We can own that, that's okay. But God wants more for us. God wants more for us. We're called to take up our cross daily, to let God break our hearts to make us more and more like Jesus. So we need to learn to pray Psalm 51. We need to learn to pray this way to God, not just when we've hit rock bottom in our lives, but regularly to pray this way, to make this kind of open-hearted, this broken-hearted repentance part of our natural and regular prayer rhythms with God. We need to learn to pursue God's heart by keeping our heart open to being broken. And don't forget, this is clearly a communal prayer. And so let the brokenness that the Spirit wants you to see be between you and God and cry out to God in repentance. But don't let it stop there. Share it. Share it in your spiritual community with a trusted friend or a spiritual leader in your life. Share that brokenness. The Japanese art of kintsugi is so rich with spiritual meaning. We could go on and on. But I like the way one author put it. He said, um, kintsugi treats breakage and repair as part of the history of an object rather than something to disguise. All of us are broken in our sin, whether we want to see it or not. We're all broken. It's part of our history. But that's not the end of our story. We come to God as we are so that he can restore us, so that he can forgive us, so that he can renew us and heal us in a new way that makes us shine with his beauty in a way that we hadn't before. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for your love. Despite our brokenness, you don't cast us away, you don't condemn us, but you gave your Son so that we could be made new. So soften our hearts this morning, Father, wherever we are. Some of us here in this room have heavy hearts. Our brokenness is is front and center, right before us, right at this moment. And for others of us, it maybe is more distant Maybe we've hardened our heart because there's something in us we don't want to see. But Father, help us, like David, to respond in brokenness, in honesty before you, before others. To just fall before you, to worship you. Because you see us, Father. You see who we truly are, and you love us anyway. So make us more open to your transforming 
to your transforming work in us. That's so often painful, Father, but it's your grace to make us more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.